Welcome to episode 87 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm excited because we're going to talk about the film that I think both of us were the most excited to see all year. Well, considering that the the new Terrence Malick movie is definitely not going to be released this year now, then, then 100% the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, as I mentioned before, directed by Martin Scorsese, previously directed Kundun and Bringing Out the Dead, uh, star- <laughs> starring Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and Jesse Plemons. Uh, in 1920s Oklahoma, a series of murders and increasing violence leads to an FBI investigation with a man and his wife at the center of it. Uh, it originally premiered May 20th at the Cannes Film Festival. And was released wide in the U.S. October 20th. It will eventually be streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. A Metacritic score of 89. And a Rotten Tomatoes score of 93. We have only previously reviewed one Martin Scorsese movie on this podcast. It was The Irishman four years ago. Um, so this is a very rare event. Uh, they've already announced he's going to do his next movie with uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. But... Um, I saw this opening night. I know you saw it the Friday of opening weekend. Um, did this live up to your expectations, Jonathan? Absolutely. It's the best film of the year so far, I think. It makes me so happy that Scorsese, who's 80, who uh, just a few weeks from now will turn 81 later in November, and he's making films as, as good and as vital as he's ever made. This is essential cinema. It makes me love the medium. I think that he is proving Tarantino wrong, even though I think Tarantino is generally accurate that most directors, the last film they make and the last few films they make even are some of the worst films they ever make. But with Silence and The Irishman and with this Killers of the Flower Moon, I mean, boy. And the last two almost seem like great last movies, but he keeps making good movies. I mean, he's going to make another I know, but if uh, The Irishman had been his last movie, it would have been a great last film. If this is his last movie, heaven forbid, it will be a last great movie, uh, a great last movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I mean, of course, it's obvious to say this, but on every technical level, the, the cinematography uh, by the same man who shot Barbie earlier this year has shot Rodrigo uh, Prieto. Yes. Yes. His last number of movies. Uh, his longtime editor, Thelma Shoemaker, uh, the score by the late Robbie Robertson, uh, you know, the costumes. I mean, every aspect of the movie. Production just, designed by Jack Fisk, longtime collaborator uh, with Terrence Malick and David Lynch. I know. I know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, been married like 50 years to who? Uh, uh, from uh, Cold Miner's Daughter. What's her yeah, name? Sissy's basic. Longtime right. resident of the state of Virginia, from what I remember. <laughs> yeah, so I mean the movie's just a technical feast. I mean it's just masterful filmmaking, but it also never gets in the way of the incredible performances, the screenplay, the themes and I mean it's just like it's such a rich film. It's it's 
not a fast paced thrill ride of a movie in the way that something like Goodfellas or Casino is, even though it's uh, Wolf of Wall Street. longer. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't feel like it's almost three and a half hours. I mean, it's 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 a full meal of a film, but I didn't feel like it was as long as it was. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of talking generalizations right now, but <laughs> I think the MPV of the film, I mean, all three of the lead performances, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and Lily Gladstone, I think De Niro is maybe the MPV of the film, uh, the MVP of the film. It was something I don't think I've ever seen him really do before is play a character like this. Um, I th- he's really aging incredibly well. And it, we've seen him wasted on so many movies like Dirty Grandpa and stuff like that, that to actually see him. And it's such a different performance than he was in The Irishman. The Irishman was uh, very much a performance of someone who doesn't really know what's going on, which is almost sort of what DiCaprio does in this one. Um, while in this one, it's someone who very much knows what's going on to the point of uh, complicit. Yes. <laughs> and like in a way that all, and there is a bit of the uh, sort of self-deception that you see a bit in the Irishman with his character, something that comes out near the end. Um, but it was it's just it's masterful the way he manipulates Leonardo DiCaprio's character and how sort of quiet he is the whole movie, but also being really terrifying and menacing um, is really, really exceptional. And I think, I guess the place to sort of start this is, is a performances, which maybe is not something people necessarily relate um, to Martin Scorsese movies. I think maybe De Niro is the only person who's won an Oscar for a Scorsese movie. Is that right? Or is it uh, Joe Pesci? Cape Blanchett. Okay. Aviator. The aviator. Yeah. No, I mean, but if you look at it, I think he's only like maybe second to Woody Allen of the living directors have directed the most number of performances. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I think people generally associate him more as like a technical bravado filmmaker than necessarily like bringing the best out of actors, like someone like, um, like, you know, Cassavetes isn't necessarily a great example because it's not like his people were nominated for Oscars either. Um, but I think that this movie foregrounds performances in a way and not only this one, but I think maybe every movie he's done sort of in this period, this late career Scorsese period that we're starting to see with with Silence and uh, The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon, which I think are very much on the same sort of wavelength in terms of less frenetic like montage and editing than maybe we had seen previously in Scorsese movies like Wolf of Wall Street, for example, is just like the editing is sort of like the superpower of that movie. Like it's, it's just a masterpiece in editing. Um, and as we've seen him sort of in his late career stage, Silence, Irishman, and this one especially, he sort of lets the camera linger for a lot longer and allows a bit of more space for performances. And I think uh, was maybe possible in, in earlier Scorsese movies when it was so focused on um, montage and editing and insert shots and style and stuff like that. Um, it's something but I very, I would, very... 
Well, it's not like you, there weren't great acting performances in her last I mean, Scorsese, but it's like De Niro in this movie, De Niro in that film. De Niro well, yeah, in that. it's like it's like the like to me, it's up there with John Wayne and John Ford and Fellini and Mastriani, and like he, it's like you know he has. This is a very different kind of De Niro performance than than something like Raging Bull or Good. I know, but it's Taxi like Driver. he's always been a director of like amazing performances. But I do agree that like he's one of those that it's it's kind of both the t- like i'd say that kubrick is a director that like had a lot of great performances in his film but like definitely foremost you think of the tech technical prowess and the, yes the beautiful you know it's like like the David formalism Pinscher. yeah and you know scorsese it's like you think of the editing you think of the music choice uh but i also think a performance pretty high up uh, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm overstating it to sort of like make a point because performances are a big part of earlier ones. But um, I mean, like, especially for me, Lily Gladstone in this one is like, I don't think I've seen I don't think there was maybe like room for some a performance like this in in maybe some of his earlier ones, unless you're talking about something like Last Temptation of Christ or, or something like that. Um, like it's definitely not the sort of mode you see in After Hours or um Goodfellas or something like that because the pace is so frenetic in those movies um and the pace in this one is so sort of like lived in um and I, like you said it, it doesn't necessarily feel like a three and a half hour movie but it makes the full use of its running time in terms of like foregrounding the lives of these people and in, in very small moments that have very very big impacts um, and there's a it's really a proper epic and it's like yes. some movie like Lawrence of Arabia where like actually a good percentage of the running time is a handful of characters talking, you know, doing, you know, not big action spectacle scenes, but there yeah. are scenes of incredible sweep and, you know, big screen entertainment. But, you know, it balances the intimate and the, the intimate such a driven. huge part of it. Because, I mean, one of the, like the key scenes of the movie for me is like there's a sort of sinful romance between Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And there's a moment maybe like an hour into it where they're sort of like having their first dinner together and it's raining outside and she wants to keep the window open and be quiet so they can hear the rain. And he just sort of like lets that scene play out in such a natural and sensitive and understanding way and really embraces sort of silence in a way that I don't think a lot of filmmakers would necessarily be comfortable with just sort of letting a a domestic scene where people aren't talking to each other play out over the course of like a minute, a minute and a half. Um, Um, That I thought was brilliant. I thought it was incredible. And I talked to before about one of the reasons I like the Irishman so much is that the first two hours plus is not as fast paced, but it's more in line with something like Goodfellas or Casino but the like last hour of the Irishman is so amazing where it slows down and it's quiet and you see uh, De Niro's character going to kill Hoffa and he gets on the plane and then mm-hmm. he gets into the car and it just is like some of the greatest filmmaking scores he's ever done. And I like the fact that Killers, like for all the sweep and the epicness of it, it's actually a very character driven film and it it lets the characters have scenes so you care about and you understand you the understand context them. of the historical yeah. context. Yeah. And it, it lets characters behave like human beings in a way that I think a lot of movies um, require almost like 
foregrounding explanation of character actions so that the audience members are very clear about like what this person is feeling. Um, it emphasizes rationality in a way that I don't think is necessarily true to the human experience, because I think a lot of things people do in their everyday life is not necessarily driven by rationality. You don't necessarily think through everything that you do and sort of foregrounding feeling over rationality, I think is an incredible achievement of this movie because there are some things that some characters do that just doesn't make any sense. Um, but a lot of people, things people do in real life don't really make any sense either. Um, and I think that that's something that's handicapped a lot of, it has something to do with audience members. Like a lot of, you know, people will complain about a movie like, oh, I don't understand why this character did that. What that character did wasn't in keeping with how the character was up until that point in a way that if a human being in the real world were to do something that was unexpected or maybe slightly different than what they had previously done, people wouldn't bat an eye because they just say, oh, well, that's what happens. But for some reason, people expect in movies everyone to behave according to how they think they would behave or to react to how they think people would react. Um, and I think this movie really allows space for sort of contradictions in personality and in choices um, that very much reflects the human experience in a way that I don't think a lot of movies necessarily allow. Um, I, it's, I think back to something Christopher Nolan said about Tenet, about how conservative audience members generally are about sound design, where if uh, an audience member doesn't hear something, they, they think that that's like a mistake on the part of the movie while not sort of, you know, recognizing that in everyday life, most things you don't like hear, like a lot of times you're having a conversation with someone and you don't exactly hear what they say. And you just sort of nod your head and smile and say like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to continue on because I didn't hear what they said, but people sort of need to, hear everything everyone says in movies and if they don't hear it they'll ask like what did they say oh my god what did they say and it'll, they'll really stick up on it um so i this isn't necessarily about sound design because you can hear most things people say in this but sort of character actions and character motivations and the cognitive dissonance that i think really exists in real human beings that live in the world um is very well portrayed and expressed in this movie in a way that i i don't think a lot of movies make space for and allow for because they're very reliant on, you know, uh, sort of narrative coherence and logical progression of events in a way that I don't think actually mirrors the way people actually interact with the world. Um, did, is that sort of something you saw in this movie? <laughs> well, I think part of it, too, is that Di uh, DiCaprio's character is kind of an idiot. He's maybe that, like the dumbest person I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> I mean, the thing about it is that these characters make decisions that may uh you know irritate you or you kind of like why would they do that but you have to think well they're not the smartest people in the country <laughs> and, yeah you know, and they're, and they're not seeing of... two steps ahead they're just living in the day in the moment yeah de niro's character probably more than anyone is uh you know but you see him uh scolding dicaprio's character uh because you know he makes stupid decisions and you know they hire out these killers who are like you know moonshiners <laughs> and these two-bit criminals that are you know it's like but I but, mean, you, it does... but you do also see cognitive dissonance on his part because i don't think he's seeing what he's doing as evil but we as audience members see what he's doing as like an evil act but even up until the end he doesn't sort of recognize what he's doing as as bad 
he's sort of like at least the way he argues it to DiCaprio's character is just this is sort of how the world works this is the way things go um so even it doesn't present sort of black and white in a way that a lot of movies traditionally do good and evil and stuff like that uh, in a way I found very interesting and he's so insidious De Niro's character because there's that scene where he even offers to put more money for uh more money into the you know to find who's doing it and he's doing it he's <laughs> yeah. hiring the people and it just shows because he's so uh affable and so much a part of the community seems such a wonderful guy for the first part of the movie and then you understand how much he is you know helping murder these people and there's yeah this, you know it's it's awful and it's like there is some like surprising comedy in the film with how bumbling some of these criminals are but also you're also reminded of just how horrendous this is this genocide of these people and you know you see connections to the you know the tulsa you know the yes yeah and 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 there's just this real interesting connection to history and the way it's presented with you know the recreations of photographs and like you see like like a bit of a silent movie you see some actual footage of the events and there's of course this incredible recreation with the costumes and the production design of history but uh yeah, it just it really puts you in. It's one of those period pieces based on true story, based on true history films, where you really feel like you're living back then and you're experiencing life because it's so lived and it feels like this world has been captured so incredibly on every level. Uh, and it and a big part of it is just how much you live with the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I've never been the biggest fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. I think that he is uh, has really good taste in film, and I think he has given very good performances. But I don't put him at like the absolute top of the greatest actors of his generation. Um, but I think this is one of his better performances, and I think generally his best performances are ones where he plays assholes, like in yeah. the two Tarantino films, or people that are struggling with their, uh, you know, kind of their. Not necessarily, well, once upon a time in Hollywood, it's more of kind of the image, but he's, you know, in The Wolf of Wall Street and Django, he's playing these like morally bankrupt characters and he's doing it so wonderfully. And in this film, he manages to still be kind of handsome and charming, but he also has this kind of seedy, you know, <laughs> untrustworthy quality. And they're just his ugly teeth. And he looks, you know, he, they've, they've done some, you know, minor subtle work with his face he looks you know kind of ratty there's yeah. something you don't trust about him um a but coyote yeah, that, is how his wife describes them right yeah and i mean lily gladstone i've been on the lily gladstone train since certain women i mean she should apparently is the movie that uh got scorsese interested in casting her yeah i mean she should have won best supporting actress for that film wasn't even nominated at the oscars uh, but uh, I was always a fan of hers. She was has a small role in another Kelly Reichardt film, First Cow. Uh, but uh, you're talking about silence in the movie. I mean, she says so much in the movie, even when she's not talking. I mean, oh, yeah. in a much smaller role, it reminded me in a way of like Anna Paquin and The Irishman, where she can say literally a few words or no words and just look. And she says so much. She almost has... I mean, it's like connected to the time period, but she's almost like a silent film actress. There's mm-hmm. like this quality that her face has where you can imagine they could just cut 
you know, a whole page of dialogue and it's just there on her face or the interactions with DiCaprio's character as he's speaking or De Niro's character and like the way she sits there. And it's almost like she doesn't even uh, give them the time of day or she doesn't like uh, justify what they're saying or the response. And narratively, she does, you know, get taken out of the movie for, I'm not like, you know, killed off, but taken out of the movie for a while because, you know, she is being poisoned. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, but that's part of the narrative. And I think that you always feel her presence, even when she's not in the film for a part of it. She, you know, there's this presence of her in the film because she's been so powerful earlier in the film when she literally is on screen. It's it's one of those performances, one of those very rare performances you see, and you can't imagine a film working without this person. Um, they're su- they're just such an important part of of what makes it work and what makes it powerful and in grounding it in such an incredible way. And her voice and like the way she laughed was so incredible and so like singular in particular in this movie um, that it's one of those performances where you, you can't take your eyes off them anytime they're on the screen. You just think like, wow, this is like magnetic. This is someone who's really doing something that, you know, it's sort of lightning in a bottle kind of stuff um, in a very I, different way. I think lightning in a bottle, like Ryan Gosling was in Barbie. Um, this is like the, the opposite kind of mode and mood of a performance, but um, I can't imagine that all three of them won't get nominated. Oh, they definitely will. Um, I mean, I was disappointed that De Niro wasn't nominated for lead actor for The Irishman. That wasn't like so shocking. He was kind of on the cusp, but like it's going to be Leo Best Actor nomination, her for Best Actress, and then De Niro for Best Supporting Actor. And I think at this point, she's she's one of the favorites. Um, I, I know, think that uh, it's possible Jesse Plemons might even get nominated. He didn't show up for like supporting. two hours plus <laughs> yeah. in the movie, but uh um, I saw some interesting uh, tweet. It was funny about how someone was pointing out how Scorsese is going through the cast of Friday Night Lights and having them, you know, investigating DiCaprio and Scorsese films because you have Kyle Chandler and Wolf of Wall Street uh-huh. and you have Jesse Clemens in uh, this movie. He's going to have uh, Matt Saracen in the next one. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting with the two connections that he was in Scorsese's last film, The Irishman, and he was in one of the most prominent western films of the last recent uh, recent years nominated for the power of the dog mm-hmm. so it was fitting that he was in this movie and of course the backstory of the making of this movie is that originally the original vision of the film that was more close to the original book was that dicaprio was going to play the fbi agent and was going to focus even more on the white characters mm-hmm. and really kind of the investigation but they during covid really massively re- reworked the script this is the only script besides silence that Scorsese has been credited on since Casino because mm-hmm. he is like very much like um, uh, Spielberg that uh, has not been credited on very many of his screenplays. I actually think there's a chance that Scorsese could win a second competitive Oscar for best screenplay. For adapted, for adapted screenplay. Sc- I mean, like, I mean, I don't even know. Like, It'd be interesting because it seems like a lot of it, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like improvised, but I know that there's a, a big scene in the middle, which is a, a sort of like tribal meeting of the Osage people um, where the sort of current actual in the present tribal leaders play the tribal leaders from then. And it's just basically like an off the cuff improvised speech. Um, but that's where we, we sort of get screenplay, sort of a nebulous idea 
um, because so much is changed within the shooting process and during the, the process of principal photography. Um, but no, I wouldn't be surprised if he was at least nominated. Um, it probably will be a competitive category with uh, um, Oppenheimer and stuff like that as well. Yeah, and and I, I think Barbie might be adapted screenplay as well. It's sure. going for original because it's that weird thing. Well, technically, it's like an adaptation of a of, character of pre-existing. Of a, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, I've, I've read, I'm pretty sure that it's going in original. So, okay. uh, yeah, so I think, you know, Poor Things and uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, um, you know, I mean, I would nominate Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, I think mm -hmm. could get nominated. But I think, you know, but anyway, what, you know, who cares? It's a great film, no matter <laughs> what the awards are. I mean, I think it's very likely I was listening to a, a podcast and they said, you know, like uh, the Irishman was nominated for like 10 Oscars and didn't win a single one. Yeah. I could imagine that Oppenheimer is going to win almost every below the line category and that honestly like i could see this not winning anything or maybe like scorsese could win best director and that's the only thing it's going to win i think lily gladstone is as close to a lock as is possible well but neither of us has seen poor things and i've heard that emma stone is like she's going to win a second oscar but within, it's like... so political with the, the fact that emma stone has already won one lily gladstone if she were to win would be the first indigenous person to win one um that I it's not like I think she doesn't deserve it because I really really think she does I have I obviously haven't seen poor things so I can't comment yeah on that's that performance. A, it yeah and and there's other ones still coming out this year but I, I do think that um it, it's it's hard to uh I mean there's been a long history of the Oscars where it's like they've snubbed right actress Scorsese. wrong movie <laughs> well no no they snubbed Scorsese wasn't nominated for best director for Taxi Driver which is madness. Uh, didn't win for Raging Bull. Didn't win for Goodfellas. Didn't win. I mean, like, The Departed isn't even one of his 10 best films, probably. It's incredibly entertaining and well-made, but he should not have won for that. And um, if he... Or it should have been, like, his third. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he directed... You know, I think Taxi Driver is one of the absolute best films of the 70s. Raging Bull is one of the absolute best films of the 80s. And Goodfellas is one of the absolute best films of the 90s. And I mean, I think The Irishman is still his best film this century, but Killers of the Flower Moon is right up there close at second. Uh, for me. I think Killers of the Flower Moon felt so urgent in a way that The Irishman didn't. Um, and so like on the pulse of what's happening um, in, in regards to sort of like erasure and historical memory and, um, you know, sensitive and understanding depictions of um you know, indigenous struggle and indigenous erasure and stuff like that. And it's such a powerful final shot that that really made it feel very urgent and very contemporary. Well, can we can we say like we're going to, you know, <laughs> skip for the next few minutes? We, I want to talk about the ending. Sure. If, if if no one has seen this, we've been discussing this movie for a good bit now, close to half an hour. If you haven't seen it or if uh, if you haven't seen it and you don't want something to be spoiled, you can go ahead and skip ahead. Uh, a few minutes uh if if you don't care about anything being spoiled you can keep listening um because the way the movie ends is was really really unique um so right now we're going to start talking about the ending so jonathan yeah um so the movie pretty suddenly jumps forward in time to a radio play mm -hmm. where you see all these actors and it's interesting a number of musicians in it like jack white shows up and uh 
you see them instead of like in a lot of films you have title cards this is what happened with so and so it happens in goodfellas it happens in some of scorsese's own films where you get this person you know went to jail and then they died in this year uh they have instead a radio play that you they really emphasize the sound effects the foley you see the people behind the scenes doing the sound effects and it's this kind of cheap uh, reproduction of history mm-hmm. and it shows how like the media is a big part of how people think of history and prevents a simplified version of it right and it's also uh you know virtually everyone you know you know that's in the well everyone that's you know working on this play on this uh that we see is a white person yes and uh and there's this kind of simplification like you said of the history and then Scorsese himself comes out and he gets the final word and he talks about what happened to Molly, this Lily Gladstone's character. And it has one of the great final lines. He says, uh, he's talking about the obituary of her and he says, there was no mention of the murders. Mm-hmm. And oh, then, it gives me chills right now. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and then you see this amazing shot of the Osage, this bird's eye view and Playing the camera the goes up and up and up and up. And, I feel like it's Scorsese coming to terms with not only, you know, the idea of, like we said, how the media represents atrocities and violence in the world, but also his own filmography, his own impact, uh, you know, doing gangster films, doing films about violent men, violent people, the history of violence in America from Goodfellas, you know, and Gangs of New New York. You know, based on true stories, casino based on true stories, and ones that are fictional, like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets. And he's the departed. He's like, in a weird way, it's, uh, you know, connecting to his like religious homes. It's like kind of questioning the morality. I mean, I don't think he's like, oh, I I'm, I regret making violent movies or films that explore game, but it makes you. No, think but this of- movie shows violence in a way that I thought um, The Irishman did really well. And I don't really see in a lot of movies where it really emphasizes the suddenness. And almost oh. the banality of violence. The, there's that horrible scene, really. It's like the first violent scene where someone just points a gun out a window and shoots a mother. And then right she's dead. Beside, I and know. Right it happened. Her baby it, it happens. So it's like yeah. almost like the sort of Hannah Arendt idea of the banality of evil, where violence isn't like in some situations it is like incredibly shocking. And there's like a whole bunch of stuff. But in a lot of situations, at least the way it's depicted in the Irishman and this one, it just happens and it's over. And it's and like <laughs> it's just something that like, happened. And there's like a scene where a, hor- a horrible accident that's, you know, purposeful where they blow up a house and like they're walking through the wreckage and there's like a part of a severed hand just there. And it's yeah. like a matter of fact, they're like, oh, let's step over that. And it's well, I uh, saw I saw criticism of this that it like glorified violence or at least like made it. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase that was used, but it seemed so the opposite of what it was actually what was actually happening um in the movie there's no i mean there i mean like the violence that in the taxi driver is horrible and it's disturbing but it's still kind of like uh, it's stylized yeah it's stylized yeah yeah yeah. and um yeah there's like i'm not gonna like rewatch any like oh let's look at the kill scene and killers (laughs) of the fire it's like horrendous and and tragic and 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 has weight to it um but it doesn't you know. like use like insert shots. It doesn't make like gunshots sound like really loud. It's just like something that happens. Um, and th- that's like I, I think of the first time um, 
Leonardo, uh, Robert De Niro's character kills someone in The Irishman. It's just like he walks up to him and he shoots him in the head and he walks away. And it's all presented in like one take and there's not like any sort of inserts and it doesn't like have any like boom music when he does the gunshot. It's just something that happens. Um, and that's something that and a lot of I mean, Quentin Tarantino, obviously, is someone who stylizes violence and in some way takes I've seen it argued that it takes the power away from violence and that it's sort of stylized to the point of almost being like cartoonish. Um, but this is very much a different mode of portraying violence. It's yeah. something that just happens. And it's like a choice someone makes to do this thing. And a lot of times it's not like the person who does it like feels bad about it. They don't even like think about it as something significant because they're so desensitized to to doing it. And their their motivations for doing it are so like, I mean, to them, like just sort of natural and understandable that that and, it is just something that happens and it's and it's and it shows you how callous these people are because like there's a scene early on where dicaprio's character goes and they they rob some native americans and then he gambles it away like <laughs> immediately <moment>. and <laughs> yeah. there's this you know the it's like there's this whole you know these these horrible murders this genocide of these people and it's like there's to them it's just like you know how much money can we get from? I mean, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, we almost didn't say the basic premise of the movie is that it's like this is like the Native American, uh, the Osage uh, community has become like the most rich people in like a short, uh, yes. compact uh, because they the bought country. the land that that they live on instead of yeah, sort of living oil. on yeah instead of living on land that was like assigned to them by the government they purchased land from a different indigenous community and sort of this is now their land. And it happens that oil is on this land and they become the richest per capita population in the entire world. And they have, you know, white people driving for them and being their servants and their nannies and stuff like that. And, you know, people like Robert De Niro think that this money belongs to them and that, you know, these people don't deserve this money. Um, but it's such a matter of fact thing to them that like they, you know, they don't deserve it. We know how to spend it better. Um, it's really the messed up. It's a, it's a very intense. It's a very dark story, but and it's I think, so vital I, I, and it's so important. I know, and and I hate even pointing at that. But I heard a, someone say in a podcast that like because of Scorsese have done all these violent, bleak movies that get snubbed at the Oscars. It's like I could imagine like even like he's you know a lot of people think you know maybe the greatest living American film director. They'll be like yes, nominate it for best picture, but it's going to get all these nominations, but like. But we're not actually going to vote for it because it's bleak and depressing and it's yeah. like, you know, and it's almost three and a half hours. It's like, I think like, you know, every Academy member almost will watch the movie and they'll like really love it and or at least appreciate it and think it's masterfully done. But it's like, but I'm going to vote for uh, Ryan Gosling for supporting actor <laughs> over De Niro. And it's like, and I don't even have a problem. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, you should always vote for the serious film. Like, I think comedy gets short shift at the Oscars. I don't think that just because something's quote unquote important, like that doesn't necessarily make it a better film. Yes. You know, because I think you even think that Barbie is maybe better than Oppenheimer, you know. when I do. Um, <laughs> but it's like the year that Gravity and 12 Years a Slave came out, I thought Gravity was a better film. I do too. Um, you know, and but, uh, I remember, the, yeah. I think, imp I don't know, importance is, it's such a sort of nebulous question. And like, is that something that should be valued? But. Like if I were in charge of the American, if I was like secretary of education, I would require sophomore or freshman history classes to screen this over a week in their classes. I think it's and, necessary. 
and I want to point out because we'll get to review it because uh, I've already seen it, but it's going to make a lot of interesting essays and dissertations comparing this with the zone of interest. They're both films that look back at, at atrocities in history and and they're films about like how do how did people react to them? How are they complicit? And mm -hmm. how do you depict it in a film? Like, what moral choices do you make as a filmmaker, as artist? And like, like, what are the things you do and you don't do? What do you show and don't show? You know, whose perspective? Who's telling the story? Who gets to yeah. tell the stories? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, there's not going to be a Native American that's going to be able to, an indigenous person, you know, is not going to be given $200 million to make this film. But it's like, well, it's better that a master filmmaker goes... <laughs> And like really gets into the community and gets their input and tells it with such soul and such heart and such mastery, such passion that, too. I mean, rather than it not just not getting made because it's exactly. not. Exactly. I mean, hopefully there'll be a point where a, a indigenous person can make a hundred million dollar plus sweeping epic like this. But it's just, the reality is, this is going to happen. In, At least not in, right now. Yeah. Even in twenty twenty three. Yeah. So but, yeah. So I think this is best film of the year so far. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, uh, I won't watch it as many times as I'll watch Barbie throughout the course of my life, probably. Um, and in our next episode, we're going to talk about a movie I really, really, really liked, but, um, the sort of this, the vitality of this, the, um, just how urgent it felt the the final shots would just leave you like totally, uh, it's a sort of mixture of like hopefulness as well as total devastation is just something yeah. I think is very, very rare. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like what great art can do is that it, it, it like it devastates you, but it also in a weird way makes you hopeful. It like makes you aspire for, you know, understanding. And yeah. To, to, yeah. To understand other people's lives. I mean, it's the whole empathy machine thing that the Roger Eber talked about. Um, like this movie like delivers it. It is like it is the ultimate movie in terms of that of, of making you sort of feel for other human beings and, and understand the suffering of other human beings and try to understand the reason people do what they do and how it might not make sense sometimes. But you know, not everything everyone does makes sense. Um, and and let me end with this. It's going to be on Apple TV soon, and we say this all the time. But if you're going to go to see this movie go see it in a theater because also part of it is the commitment of mm -hmm. sitting there for three hours and 26 minutes like the movie needs to be watched in one sitting mm -hmm. it's not going to have the same collective power and there's also been movie theaters that have against the contract put in you know going against you know scorsese and thelma shoemaker oh we know better we're going to put an intermission in so we can <laughs> yeah. sell more popcorn you know no sit and watch the movie in a theater uh, go see it in IMAX if it's still playing. Yeah. Uh, okay. So movie of the year so far. <laughs> yes. We're gonna talk about a western that is three hours shorter when we return from our brief break. Uh, so we will take a, a very short break and we'll be back with you in just a minute. All right, we are back to discuss another Western, but almost as different as you could expect a Western to be. It is a good three hours shorter and a lot gayer. Uh, it is A Strange Way of Life, directed by Pedro Almodovar, 
who has previously directed Volver, Todo Sobre Mi Madre y Hablo Con Ella. Uh, it stars Pedro Pascal e Ethan Hawke. I'm just going to do the whole thing in Spanish. Uh, it is Happy about... birthday, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> the Feliz cumpleaños, Ethan Hawke. Yes. Uh, it stars, or it is about two gunslingers reunited after 25 years apart. Um, uh, originally premiered May 17th, uh, El Diecisiete de Mayo at oh, no. Right around <laughs> the same time as Killers of the Fire Moon. Yes, very much so. Um, was released wide in the U.S. October 6th. It is currently streaming on Mubi. It was a Mubi release, at least in theaters as well. It distributed this movie. A Metacritic score of not available, which I was surprised to find. And a Rotten Tomatoes score of 75, which I thought was surprisingly low. Um, I think I think we. it's safe to say we're both big fans of Pedro Almodovar. Um, yeah, I've seen is... almost all of his movies. I'm not sure you're as caught up as, uh, with his early stuff as I am. No, I think maybe I've seen about half of 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 his movies um and this one was presented in... i'm more of a completist than you yes you very much are also just i want to be picky <laughs> i think sony pictures classics released it in america okay movie released it internationally and and on streaming yes. services um see 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 claro que see um it was at least the way i saw it it was screened in uh companion with his only other english language release uh the human voice which he made over covid um so he's made his last two movies are short films um his last between it was parallel mothers madres paralelas (laughs) so uh a western this very much it plays with the format it it very obviously references some genre key, not format sorry sorry genre i'm all mixed <laughs> up i'm switching languages constantly um it it very much is very literate of the western genre it it references some some pretty big hitters within the genre um there's a very obvious reference to the wild bunch um, but being a, a resident in-house gay person, Jonathan, what did you think of Strange Way of Life? Well, I thought you were going to say Peckinpah fan, but uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I certainly thought of the Wild Bunch, but uh, William Holden and Ernest Borgnine don't start making out together after shooting the wine uh, containers. Yes, exactly. Um, it's probably happened in a number of Western films, but, but it, that's I what I think of. Bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I uh yeah, this movie is slight, but that's not even really a criticism to me. It's like it's a almost like a beautiful, you know, incredibly, you know, well-made doodle. And yes. uh, it it's like I you it's like one of the very few films in recent years where you wonder, oh, this might have been even better longer, <laughs> you know, which isn't true of like yes. Oppenheimer and Killers of the Moon, <laughs> even though we both really like those movies. Don't need to be longer. Um, but I also think that maybe that part of the appeal of the movie, the kind of the sexual tension, it, it, it works better as this like just this brief 31 minute short. And yeah. that if it was drawn out, you know, especially because it's kind of a comedy. You know, it's played kind of straight face, poker face, but it is, you know, a comedy pretty much, it's right? Sort of, it's campy, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it works as well as it does because of Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke uh, playing it so seriously and not winking at the camera, but you can tell that they're, they're, they know the way to pitch the performances. Yes. Um, and... Uh, 
I just enjoy. I mean, it's interesting how it's like Scorsese, uh, age 80, doing his first Western, Spielberg in his mid 70s doing his first musical with West Head Story, Almodovar, he's like, you know, getting close to 75. Yeah. Uh, with his first Western, it's just interesting seeing uh, directors going later in their career playing with new genres. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be noted that this film was created because he had a deal what was it like saint laurent uh yes eve saint laurent yeah right so one uh, of the criticisms of it is that it's basically like an ad for clothes which i think is kind of ridiculous yeah because his movies have always had incredible color and clothing uh, costumes production design and like there's never really any like oh let's get a shot or like let's reference that you know there's certainly yeah if if you weren't aware of the partnership i don't think you'd you'd even realize that it was no the most is you'd go oh the costumes are great but <laughs> yeah exactly like they're yeah. dressed really well <laughs> right and um i mean there are <laughs> you could say the only criticism you wish that there were a few more shots of the male leads with less less clothes <laughs> on i mean it's uh it's it's um it's funny though that you know that Almodovar at you know there's been numerous times in his career where he came close or was in talks to direct English language films. Break One was yeah, Brokeback Mountain. Also on Sister Act. Did you ever know that he was in talks to direct that? Now that you just said it, it like sparked a memory I had that yeah, I remember that being yes. But, um, when uh he was asked once how his film of Brokeback Mountain would have been different, and he's what he said more sex. More sex, <laughs> which is funny because there really isn't a lot in this one. No, and I think part of it is like I said that uh, it's only thirty-one minutes, and yeah. uh, part of the the appeal of the movie is that it's the the longing. It, it's interesting how there's kind of this history and this passage of time that is established in a thirty-one minute film. You know exactly, uh, yeah, and that there's this, uh, it, you know, and 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 with actors as good as Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke, there's so much on their withered faces, their beards and their, just their presence on screen. You can feel like a whole history that's not actually depicted or very briefly depicted with the younger uh, versions <laughs> of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a little, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's almost not an experimental film at all. And, you know, besides playing with genre, but it's just like, uh, it, it's him just kind of being playful and like, let me do a, you know, a little Western short with like two big movie stars. And it's like, it's not one of his major works, you know, but it's, it's fun. I enjoy it's it. It's a bit of a tease. It, it, it definitely left me wanting more of this yeah. story after it finished. I was like, hmm. Did this need only be 31 minutes? Could this have been 90? Did you get cinematic blue balls, you could say? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Where I was like, ah, I'd like to, I'd like this to be a bigger thing. I was um, edging you. <laughs> oh, <God>. Jonathan. <laughs> We're getting too far into this metaphor. <laughs> we know. <laughs> no, but I... I yeah no I I think that um we both were saying that we like the human voice uh more yes that is works at really very much as a short yes um well this one it, it has all the tropes of the genre it, it plays with the genre really really well um it sort of it it obviously plays with sort of like uh Brokeback Mountain uh 
what you'd call sort of like an erasure from the genre. Like I'm sure in the real Wild West, there were, you know, same sex relationships, but that's not something that we've necessarily seen depicted very often. We've sort of seen it, um, you know, suggested and played with in movies like Johnny Guitar and stuff like that, which is obviously another yeah. um, frame of reference for this movie. Um, just the vivid use of colors. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think that this episode, everyone should take a drink every time Carter says erasure. <laughs> should <laughs> I? Said it like five times. In this well, episode. It's, a, we're, we're, it's, a, it's a big thing in academia these days. Um, yes. <laughs> it's something you need to be considerate about. It's remember, it's a big thing. Martin Scorsese says that cinema is not a, a an art form of what's depicted. It's also an art form of what is not depicted. Um, and I think that that's very true of the Western genre uh, more than maybe any others, because it's the mythology of the building of America and how America sees itself, but also how the world sees America to be and the vision of America that America presents to the world. So it's interesting to see, you know, a Spanish. <laughs> yes, if you were to like take a drink every time of race, though, you would be blitzed by the end of this. Um, well, but I, I do think it's an important topic. <laughs> well, there's an interesting you could do a whole series of films of non-americans doing westerns you have jane campion we mentioned doing power of the dog we have sierra julione the whole spaghetti western you know there's this interesting uh you know examples of foreigners non-americans depicting the west i mean is it ever really made clear exactly where strange no. way of life is it's almost like it's set in like 1952 hollywood one might call it a liminal space if we want to get even more buzzworthy academic terms <laughs> Yes, what's the Spanish word for Luminal? Uh, yes. But um yeah, I mean yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie. I really I, enjoyed I, it as well, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that um if you've never like seen a classic western or you've like virtually seen none of Pedro Amadovar's films, don't watch this one first. <laughs> you know, it's like it helps if you've seen a handful of classic westerns and you've seen yes. some of Amadovar's previous films. You It'd know, be a really I, interesting movie to present if you were to be teaching a class on on the Western genre as like a way to wrap it up as a, as an interesting point class. to talk. Yeah. Yeah. The last class sort of <laughs> everyone gets drunk and watch Strange Way of Life. Uh, or you could watch <laughs> it as a double feature with uh, Killers of Fire Moon and it would be like the normal length of a double feature. <laughs> yes. Right. I don't know which one you'd show first. Probably Strange Way of Life. Or I it'd probably show Strange Way of Life second as a bit of a, like a, a come down um but yeah it definitely left me wanting more um it made me want more english language Amadovar movies um it made me really believe that... in pedro pascal as like a movie star um in a way that he's mostly worked in tv um from what i can remember he's he's been in a few movies like he was in the kingsman sequel i think maybe um he was and in maybe that Nicolas a few Cage others. Is himself movie. Yes, he was in Nicholas Cage's himself movie. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it, well, he was in Game of Thrones, The Last of Us. Uh, yes. But I think that uh, you know Ethan Hawke in recent years. I mean, like last 10, 15 years, he's really been one of those that has worked with interesting directors, Paul Schrader, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, multiple times. You know, it's gone back many decades now, but Richard Link Linklater later. repeatedly and. He's, you know, he he's, uh, he, you know, uh, Karita, you know, that Japanese director. He was in a movie mm -hmm. with uh, Catherine Deneuve. You know, it's like he's doing some interesting stuff. You know, he's pushing himself as an actor. Yes, uh, very much so. And um, uh, 
it's like a smart actor. It's like, oh, Pedro Almodovar wants me to be in a 30-minute Western short. I'm there. Yeah. Then I was going to say, supposedly the next thing that he's doing is an English language film starring Kate Blanchett. Is she still in it? It's like something about a maid. That's been talked about. And I I don't know. He was like going to do it like he was really close to doing it. And then he just felt like he didn't know English well enough and he stopped. But I really do think at some point he's planning on doing an English language film like a feature. feature. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at one point Meryl Streep was connected to it, possibly. Well, that's the thing is he's so good at directing women that I just wish he had directed some of the the big Hollywood actresses. Um because I mean, as far remember, as male directors go, it's hard to think of, of a male director who directs women better than he does. I know um, it's controversial, but you know what director living has the most Oscar nominations? Woody Allen? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, yeah. they are sort of similar in, in, in their style, at least with like neuroses and um, stylized depictions of stuff. Um, obviously, Almodovar really centralizes sexuality in a way that... <laughs> Woody Allen more sort of like talks about it than depicts it. A motive of our relationships. And, yes. You know. than, than sexuality. Um, right. But I wouldn't say our motive movies are for everyone. If people aren't necessarily comfortable with like graphic depictions of sexuality on screen, it probably wouldn't be for them. But this movie really isn't like that. It's sort of more about the, the before and the after. Um, I, I remember from the interview that uh, was screened, um, after this movie, after the human voice as well, a shot he was very proud of was of the two characters reaching for underwear at the same time. And that he doesn't think he'd ever seen like two men putting on underwear at the same time in a movie before. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, Breaking new ground. It's exactly. The 70s. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this is very much a movie about longing and the sort of things that go unsaid and the. Uh, um build up of years and years of tension and the way the sort of past is still alive even in, in this sort of current moment um it just it, i just wish it was longer i it really left me wanting more i wouldn't take it to the extremes of metaphor that jonathan did earlier <laughs> uh you know what movie it kind of in a weird way reminded me of a little bit uh What's phantom that? thread oh interesting uh i, I don't want to give away too much about but there's kind of a towards the end uh um um he, you know helping someone heal and the question of like yes you know are you kind of hurting someone to keep them around yes you know? and sort of being in a vulnerable position makes you more dependent on someone and in some ways love them more right. and um, also uh both films great costumes exactly just spice up your relationship by shooting your partner in, in right. a non-lethal part of their body uh is the perfect way to solve any sort of issues you have in your relationship um so uh i guess the well, only also, way to... <laughs> well i was just gonna say and to me it's like Almodovar is one of those directors he has a new movie you go see it yes. scorsese has a new film you go see it like if yes. you care about film even if it's this you know 30 minute western short it's like who, yeah it's must see cares? yeah 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 exactly um so yeah two two quite different movies but two auteur directors two westerns um two Directors working in a genre for the first time very late in their career um, and a genre a lot of people think is was dying or dead, but it's sort of been revitalized by um, by exhibiting liminal spaces and addressing erasure. 
<laughs> and uh, I'll just add that uh, you know what director who has a major awards contender uh, that is going to do a western next? Bradley Cooper. I don't know. Alexander Payne. Really? Who the holdovers? Yeah. I'm sure we're going to review in the next yeah. few weeks. He's he says that his whole career he's making these comedy dramas, and that he's like been dying to make a western. Also, uh, Ari Aster is making a western with Joaquin Phoenix next. A like contemporary COVID set western, yeah. right? I think it's titled Eddington. Yes. Uh, we can wrap all this uh, this up by saying that Killers of the Flower Moon was apparently influenced in its editing style by Bo is Afraid. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a nice way to wrap up this this double feature on Westerns. Um, so there will be a much shorter gap between this episode and our next one from this episode and our previous. Uh, we'll be coming back very soon. With We're going to record it right after this. <laughs> <laughs> with a breakdown of some potential Best Actress nominee. Uh, vehicles Um, so thank you for listening to this episode and we'll be back with you next time